0: Well, hi everybody, I'm Bud, and I'm an alcoholic. When I say I'm an alcoholic, I'm saying I'm a person who cannot control and enjoy my liquor drinking, and it's as simple as that. That's what alcoholism is. The inability to control and enjoy your liquor drinking. Uh, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous out of jail, read the book while I was in jail. Why, I don't know. The judge made the comment when I went to jail that time that this man seems to have quite an alcoholic problem, and I thought he was crazy. You know, an alcoholic's a bum laying on in the gutter on Skid Row, and I wasn't one of those. And uh, I had never been arrested for playing drunk. I got busted twice for drunk driving. Had the money in my pocket to bail out, and they used to hold you that magic five hours. And then turn, you loose if you had the bail money. And hell, I'd be as drunk when I left as I was when they busted me, you know. But I was arrested many times for... Many different crimes and felonies of various sorts and did time for them. I, I've had a very interesting life. And uh, I look back at my life and it was interesting. When I was a child, I was in the movies. I was uh, in the Our Gang comedies. And I was Buddy, the little freckle-faced kid with Jackie Cooper and all those guys. And uh, we were spoiled rotten. People just, you know... Uh, you'd have thought we were President of the United States or something. They really, really, everybody just kissed our butt. I'd, I'd sneeze and I'd get my paper, and name in the local paper, the Child Star Ill, you know. It, uh, this is what the, that <coughs> did for me and, and my mother and father, uh, it was big money in those days. It's nothing now, but it, in those days my dad would have been tickled to get a job for a buck a day, and I'm earning 10 bucks a day in the movies, you know, and that's 50 bucks a week. And I was on the radio and made good money for that time. And my folks were able to pay the, their house off. My dad bought a little restroom, was bootlegging out the back door, and when Prohibition was repealed, he bought a, got a liquor license and started a bar, and he and my mother became their own best customers, you know, and, uh, my dad was the kind of a drunk I always wanted to be. My dad was a real jovial, nice guy when he was when he was drinking. Cold sober, he asked him for a dime to go to the show and he'd tell you he didn't have it. If he had a couple of drinks, he'd say yeah. Uh he'd give you a quarter. You know, this is the kind of drunk he was. My mother was just the opposite. Sober, my mother was the sweetest, kindest person in the world. But you give her a couple of drinks and she could start a fight in an empty room. I mean, she was a violent drunk, used to scare the shit out of my brothers and I, you know. And this, I used to, I I remember, God, I remember one time down San Diego or in in Tijuana, they went down there because it was Prohibition days up here, and they had the cantinas down there. And my two brothers and I, they had an old 1921 Dodge that was about as tall as a goddamn streetcar, one of them great big old square boxes. We went down and we kids under the threat of death, I think, had to stay in the car while they went into the canteen and got drunk. And coming home, my mother was beating on my father and cursing him and all kinds of stuff, you know, and my brothers and I were in the backseat, just frightened as little kids could be because of this action going on up there. And I used to think it, Boy, I don't ever want to be that way, and yet I wound up that way. Because I found booze. And booze had become my best friend. I was about 12 or 13 years old. My parents had been divorced or separated by that time and divorced. And my mother took my two brothers and I ran away from the movies and everything else and took us up to Oregon. She had an aunt and uncle up there she thought would take us in. And we got up there and they pointed to the berry fields and says, Go and sin no more, you know. And we went out and became fruit tramps. Picking berries. Here she is with three little kids, three little boys. And my kid brother was too small to do any good and so my older brother and I got my mom picking berries kept us alive at that time and people would say you know my mother or somebody would say that he used to be in the movies Why, why ain't he in the movies now and they used to wonder you know why ain't I what what's wrong with me there must have been something wrong with me for I'm no longer being spoiled I'm no longer uh, the center of attraction what's wrong with me and this is the way I felt and I was afraid. I was afraid to fight. I was afraid to do anything, you know. And we, uh, my older brother, we came back to California. And my mother recovered the house. My dad took off. And, and luckily it was paid for. So we didn't get evicted all. She, we had to do was sweat the taxes out on it, which were minimal in those days. And my uh, two brothers and I, we hung around with each other a little bit. My older brother and I did, never did get along. He wanted to be the boss. He was the father figure because he had been no longer there and he wasn't quite two years older than me. And I was the same size as him, could kick his ass any time I wanted to. You know, And then, but he wanted to be the boss and we never did get along. My kid brother and I got along real well. But I hung around with my older brother and his crowd because I wanted to be with the older guys. And we had a guy in our neighborhood named Forrest Dawson, an old Forrest, I think he started shaving when he was seven. <laughs> by the time, <laughs> by the time he was 13, he looked like he was 35. And he could <laughs> buy booze. You know, he could go to the, had a little winery down on Florence Avenue over there that he could go down and used to take your own jug. And for 39 cents, they'd give you two quarts of wine, you know, in, in this, uh, half gallon jug. And we'd get half Muscatel, half Tokay. And we called it toothpaste. Well, I guess I'll brush my teeth. And that was the thing to do was be able to lift that thing up and put your finger in here and do it like that, you know. And so among my brother's friends was a guy named Harold Butler. This guy used to pick on me all the time. He used to pinch me and punch me. And I was scared to death of him. He was bigger and older and stronger than I was. And I was his favorite object to to harass. And one day... I've had four or five slugs of this toothpaste that were, this wine that we call tooth, i brush my teeth, you know. I'd had four or five slugs of this stuff, and Butler showed up. And I was always afraid of him, but he did something that upset me, and I smacked him in the mouth. And he come after me like he was going to kill me, and he could hit me, and it didn't hurt. For the first time, I wasn't afraid of him, and I kicked his ass. <laughs> And I had found what I needed that removed the fear I had of that guy. And this is what booze did for me. And I liked the effect I got from it. Never did care for the taste of it. I puked up about half of everything I ever drank. And because I never did like the taste, but I loved the effect that I got from it. And I'd drink booze and I would be smart, good looking, ladies, man, you know, go to the dances and I'd be cold sober night. Shit, I couldn't dance this in the jitterbug days. Couple of drinks and I thought it was Fred Astaire. Man, you know. And this is what booze did for me. But it also got me into trouble. It got me kicked out of Bell High School. I and a couple of guys, we, it was just a big joke, you know. We locked the gardening teacher in the tool shed and set fire to it,
1: you know. (laughs) So they
0: sent us to Reese High School. Never let me come back to Bell. The other two guys, they let them come back to Bell, but they'd had enough of me at, at Bell High School. And uh, so then I took off one summer and I and another guy, and we went to Washington, Oregon and Washington. We're hoboing all over the west. And we wound up, broke and tapped out way up in Okanagan County, Washington. And I stole a car. And this buddy of mine didn't know how to drive, but I let him drive anyway, and we got caught. But in the meantime, we had... Robbed a service station. We stopped. We were about out of gas. And we stopped and got some service gas from one of the old things you used to have to pump the gas like that, you know. And my buddy's out there shooting the shit with this guy, pouring gas in the car, and I went in there to steal some candy bars or something because we were hungry. And I went behind the counter, and he had a gun back there. And so we held him up, locked him in the toilet, and, and we took off. Well, we get caught. They take us down to Chelan, or the Chelan County Jail up at, uh, down at Wenatchee. And they send up to Okanagan for somebody to come down and get us. And the deputy sheriff, great big dude, and the sheriff's son came down, one to drive the car we'd stolen back and the other to drive the police car. So this deputy is in the police car. I'm in the car we stole. They got us handcuffed and and with a belt and a loop on it. The belts buckle in the back. You can't get loose from it. And I'm sitting there and this gun is right underneath me and I know it. And I'm scared to tell him about it, you know. And my buddy cops to this deputy sheriff, and many honks his horn, pulled over, and he can pull me out of that car. And I have never, I've been beat up pretty good a couple of times, but never like I was that time. I don't know how many of my ribs he broke, but I was just in terrible, terrible shape when he got through with me. And I go up in that Okanagan County Jail, never did see a doctor about it. eventually I began to heal up, I guess, and, and uh, my ribs are still all crooked here from where I had been worked over. And uh, I got a great love for policemen at that time. You know? <laughs> and, and so i uh, that was my first time of doing any time. I went to reform school for that. And stayed there <laughs> about ready to get out of reform school. I've, I'm complete, what they call complete. They started with a whole bunch of demerits. And you work your way out for good behavior. You do this and that and the other thing. I had been captain of the company I was in and you get like 30 extra merits a month for that you know and everything and then I was complete and I was ready if somebody would come up with the money to get me back to California I could get out of there but nobody in my family had that much money at that time for a bus ticket to Los Angeles and I decide I and another guy decide we'll take off and we uh, but I'm in charge of the sleeping quarters of all the guys in A Company, and I'm the night watchman. I get to sleep during the day, and I'm up, supposed to be watching them. And this guy and I, we snuck out down at the back of the place, went over about a ten-foot fence, and on the way down, I jumped backwards and I broke my ankle. And I didn't know it, but I run about five miles through the woods with that broken ankle, limping and hurting like hell. But I'm free, I'm loose, and we get out to the highway and start hitchhiking. And the first car along was the sheriff of that county. <laughs> And we're standing out there in a state issue, you
1: know. A <laughs> you
0: know, big neon sign. The clothes we were wearing are right from the joint, you know. So anyway, they took me back, and then they busted our ass there real good. And when I say busted your ass, take all your clothes off. You got your shoes and socks on, and you bend over. And they bust your ass with these big belts that they use to run the machinery and the laundry, you know. And some of those guys, man, they could take a fly off your ass with that thing if they wanted to. They could cut you. They could... And so they made a hamburger out of our butts. And about three or four days later, my leg is by this time swollen up like that. And they finally took me to a doctor and put a cast on the goddamn thing. And I eventually got out of that reform school and got back to California. And I minded my own business. I posed some chicken shit stuff and everything else. But this was in the 30s. And uh, the war broke out and I went to the Marine Corps. And uh, luckily for me, I got an honorable discharge out of the Marine Corps, but I was in trouble. They took me out of the brig to give me a goddamn Purple Heart, you know.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, and I told them, I'd just give me the aspirin. I already got the Purple Heart. I don't need this son of a bitch. But, but anyway, I come out of the Marine Corps in 1943. And I could have gotten a job. Shit, it was wartime, time. All the defense plants were hiring. But I figured a hard-ass guy like me, big-time veteran, Oh, then got a gun and went into business for myself. <laughs> and one of my crime partners got caught and he told him I was with him in uh, Bingo. We both got busted. Went to the joint, got out, went back six weeks later. Just, you know, should they, I was still same cellmate, cell, same room, everything, you know, on same job. They, like they, they knew I was coming back, you know. They saved it for me. <laughs> And I got busted in the joint again for <laughs> for bootlegging. <laughs> We're making pruno in the goddamn powerhouse in hip boots. Now, if you think something's good to drink, you try some of that pruno made in rubber hip boots. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <coughs> and anyway, they shipped me over to Folsom, and I come out in 47. And I didn't quit committing crimes and shit like that, although I... uh did, didn't get caught in anything that I did. You know, I was real lucky and, and I, I went to work. I drove truck and I got some good driving jobs and I run the Alcana Highway the winter of 47, 48 and made a lot of money there and went on one of the greatest drunks I'd ever been on in my life. And I went down and bought a brand new Buick, paid cash for the son of a bitch, still had about five grand and I headed for LA. Via 395, Reno, Nevada, all that. And between the whorehouses and the gambling joints, when I got to L.A., I had to refinance that car. <laughs> I uh, had been married when I got out of the Marine Corps, and my wife and I got divorced. We had a little girl. And uh, things were just all screwed. I was always in trouble. I always felt different. Didn't know why. But I liked booze. Booze made me feel all right. And I could be a nice guy and make friends and stuff like that and borrow from them and then lose them real quick, like, you know. And uh, I clipped and clouded everybody I knew it seemed like. And in 1952, I got busted on another beef for Rob, the Southern California Gas Company. In those days, they used to go in and pay their money in cash, you know. And there they weren't a lot of checking accounts or anything like that. It was like a bank. And so anyway, I hit this place and got about $6,300 and another great drunk. And a crime partner of mine squealed on me, and it's, it's kind of weird. I was never caught in the commission of a, of a felony. Always somebody else had been with, you know. And But I had done the deed, and when this guy copped out on me and turned state's evidence, I wanted to kill him. And I think if I could have gotten a hold of him right then, I would, but he did me the biggest favor anybody ever did me, you know, because I went to jail, got an attorney this time instead of a PD. And... Uh, they gave me six months in jail, and I had to make restitution of the money that I'd stolen. Now man, that is punishment. Because come out of jail, you're broke, unemployable, unacceptable among your people, and you owe all of this money. And I owed that 6300 to the Southern California Gas Company and a bunch of other money and probably 10 grand altogether that I owed And I wouldn't have been too bad if I'd owed it to, you know, five or six or seven people and could have made a deal to pay it off. I owed 10,000 people a dollar each. And they all wanted it right now and couldn't understand why I couldn't pay it. But I had read the book. The judge made the comment that this man seems to have quite an alcoholic problem. And where he got that was from people that I'd asked to write letters for me and asking for leniency and all this kind of shit, you know. And uh, apparently their idea was that Bud's a pretty good guy except when he drinks and he drinks too much. And so the judge made that comment. This man seemed to have quite an alcoholic problem. And that's the first time I'd ever had that connected with me. So while I'm doing this six months and sometime in the last week or two that I'm in in jail on that six-month deal, I read the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I didn't purposely read it. I just had seen it in the bookcase, and I'd read everything else that was in the bookcase except Alcoholics Anonymous. They had four or five copies of the book in those bookcases. And I nobody else was in the barracks, and I'm in there for stealing. I got stature. You know, in jail there's a very definite social strata. And at the top of that social strata, I was in jail with three-wheel car Davis, the guy that swindled millions of dollars. Out of, from people with this three-wheel car scheme. And everybody would say, hey, that's three-wheel car Davis, he stole over a million bucks. Doesn't occur to him that the asshole's in jail, you know what I
1: mean?
0: <laughs> and such a, you know, such a good guy, you know. And, and, uh, Lloyd Samsel, the yacht bandit. I was in jail with Lloyd, and everybody looked at him and he'd steal a yacht in San Diego, and Sail it to Seattle and change all the numbers and everything else. And by the time he got there, he'd sell it and then he'd steal another boat in Seattle and bring it to Portland. Do the same thing coming back, you know. And he was just trading in boats back and forth, stealing them all over the place. Hey, he's sharp, but he's in jail. And this is the mentality. And I was a thief. And I had stolen enough, enough money that I had status. In jail, in those days especially, even the junkie, even the hype would throw up his pinkies and say, Thank God I haven't sunk that low about the alcoholic. And yet, I'm reading this book, and this book describes me and the feelings that I had. Describe the kind of a person I was. And it, it really bugged me. I couldn't understand it. I came out of jail that day. I was unemployable. I had burnt the bridge behind me on every job I'd ever had. Never held a job a year in my life. But every job I'd ever had, I had burnt the bridge. I couldn't go back and say, hey, could I have my job back? They'd (laughs) tell me, you left my truck behind a whorehouse or a goddamn bar someplace or something, you know. And nobody wanted anything to do with me. I was didn't know what to do about work. I uh, My brothers wanted nothing to do with me. My older brother that tried to boss me around when we were kids, I clipped and clouded him in every direction. I took his credit card and went to Florida and back on the goddamn thing. I stole his golf clubs and sold those. He couldn't prove it, but I did. When my mom wasn't home one time, I hocked all her furniture to a finance company for 600 bucks, and he had to pay it off to keep me from going back to the joint and my mom losing her furniture. And he tore the sheet there, and it was eight years before we ever spoke. Four years before and four years after I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. My kid brother... I'd helped him. He and I were in the Marine Corps together, and we were tight. And I helped him a little bit when he went to college. And I had some bucks at that time and, and helped him when he was going to college, and I never let him forget it. Boy, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't be where you are. He was an Airlines captain. Flew for Eastern Airlines for 38 years. And uh, he finally gave up on me. I'd call him for bail money. I remember one time he brought a plane out here for... I don't know, maybe Eastern, who he was flying for or something. He took a plane for another company back to New York. But anyway, he goes to my mom's place, and where's Bud? And she says, I don't know, he's probably hanging around one of those bars down there, Gage and Atlantic. And so he comes down there, and he walked into the Rex bar. And he has Swede, the bartender. He said, you know Bud McDonald? And he says, who's looking for him? And he says, "Uh, I'm his brother. He says, well, you must be the one from Florida, because I know the one from up north. And he said, yeah, well, he, says, he passed out in the back booth back here. And I was. He got me up, and man, he had money, and the party started, you know. Sometime later, I needed bail money again, and I sent him a telegram, collect, send me bail money, care of the Rex bar. And he sent the money. But the message with the telegram was, what booth are you sleeping in now? You know, he remembered that. But he finally turned me down. Every friend that I'd had, I'd clipped or clouded, lied to, lied about, done something that I was ashamed of to them. And I couldn't think of anybody that I could turn to. The day I got out of jail, I sat down at the phone and I thought I better call somebody and let them know. And I couldn't think of anybody who wanted to hear from me. And I thought, I'll call Alcoholics Anonymous. Opened the phone book and it fell open to Alcoholics Anonymous in the southeast. Ludlow 22439. I don't think it, I think it was just Ludlow 2439 at that time. I don't believe they even had the five digits. Might have. But this is 1953. But it, I called that number and a guy answered and I told him I just got out of jail and he said, have you had a drink yet? And I thought, that's gotta be the dumbest thing anybody ever asked me. I'm calling Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, no. He said, well, you better get your ass over here. And I thought, well, it's important. They need me over there right now. <laughs> And so my wife and I borrowed a car from my in-laws, and we went over to Huntington Park. And I walk into the room, and I I don't quite know what to expect, and at the hole in the ground, a stranger walks in there, man, there's somebody going to have his hand out and meet you right away and and say, hi, I'm so-and-so, are you here for yourself or a loved one or whatever, can we help you? And these guys greeted me and introduced me around, and my wife was pregnant with my youngest daughter at that time, and... Didn't quite know what to expect. I'd never been to an AA meeting. And I listened to these guys it kind of sounded like, can you top this? You know, one guy said, well, I did this and that. And another guy did it in spades. You know, he did more. And the next guy did more than that. You know, I found out in Alcoholics Anonymous, the farther down you'd (laughs) go, the higher up you were, you know. (laughs) And, but they told me they had a meeting there that night and invited me to come back. And I came back that night to the meeting (laughs) And the guy that was leading the meeting died on the 20th of last month, Jim Farwell, one of the finest men I ever knew in Alcoholics Anonymous. But I thought he was hired to be there. He, he couldn't be a drunk because he talked too nice and too politely, and he explained the program. He made more sense than the book did. And I thought he was hired to be there to teach us, you know, how to get along. And uh, but uh, there were a couple of guys that did impress me. One was a guy that said he'd been sober 38 days that day. I thought, that's possible. I'd put myself on the wagon a few times. I never considered myself as having a drinking problem. People were my problems. And But sometimes when the fire got too hot, I'd have to lay off for a while. And I would put myself on the wagon for 30 days. Never made the 30 days. I made it 21 days. But I had to give myself time off for good behavior. You know, and my sponsor, Duke Carson, talked that night and I'd seen people walk up to him and shake his hand and the gals would give him a kiss on the cheek. Guys didn't hug each other in those days. That would be a damn good way to get knocked on your ass, you know. But old Duke talked about sitting on the edge of the bed at three, four, five o'clock in the morning wondering what in the hell is the matter with you? Why do you do it? And I had done that so many times and never heard anybody talk about that before. Never knew that anyone ever did that. I thought I was the only one in the world. And he looked good. I knew people liked him because I'd seen him walk up and shake his hand. I knew he had money because in those days they didn't have that copper streak down the middle of it and it really clanked and clanged and he had that money in his pocket and I hear those quarters and a half dollars jingling. He was well dressed and well liked and I was none of those things. But I wanted what he had. I wanted to be well-liked. I wanted to be well-dressed. And I wanted to have money. And I decided, I think, at that time, that whatever he'd done, I was going to try and do. And he became my sponsor eventually. And I and he showed me a way of life that's been the greatest thing that ever happened to me. He, uh, he was a father figure. I, I know a lot of people in A that get sponsors. And their sponsors make all their decisions for them and everything else. Duke never did that with me. I'd ask Duke, I'd say, Duke, I got a problem, this is this, I can do this, this or this, what should I do? And he'd say, well, Bud, if you, your brother were in your (laughs) shoes, what would you want him to do? You know, rather than tell me, give me some kind of a phony answer, he'd tell me how to find the answer myself. He told me, Bud, if you never do anything that you can't sit down at the dinner table and tell your wife and kids about, you will never do anything wrong. That's some of the greatest advice I ever got in my life. I can gauge anything by that. If I just don't do what I couldn't talk to you about openly or talk to my family, and you guys are my family nowadays, you know. Uh, that's my wife's name up on the wall there. says Marcy Mick, who she was a black belt alanon, you know. But she was something else. But she was my support. And I learned to be a better husband to her through Duke and the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. I eventually got a job two years and five days after I came on this program. I got a vacation relief part-time job, driving truck for an outfit that I'd worked for before, on the condition that if you drink, don't come around. Just call us, we'll send your check. We don't want you around if you're drinking. And I stayed on that job for 30 years, wound up general manager of the company. Couldn't tell you how it happened, other than I didn't drink one day at a time. My, uh, I had uh, three children by the time I came in. Shortly after I got in, my youngest daughter's forty-five years old now. My son is going to be forty-eight this month. My oldest daughter's fifty-six years old, and they're all three just really, really great kids and love their daddy. They love the old man like nobody's business. My oldest daughter's an attorney. And got a very lucrative practice in Reno, Nevada. My son is director of research and technology for Time Warner. My youngest daughter works for a marketing research firm. She's a talented musician. She got a write up in one of the rock and roll magazines when she played with a woman's rock and roll band. That she's one of the hottest rock sax players in the country. And this is what this newspaper said about my youngest daughter. And these kids love me. And I know they love me. And this is what has happened since I came to you people and found out what these 12 steps mean to me and how I can use and apply these 12 steps to my life. It's been such a wonderful deal to find all you people and and, and think of the things. I'll be, many of you know Howard Christian, Big Howard they call him, he, Kaiser meeting. Howard and I were playing golf yesterday and we're sitting on a bench waiting for the guys to get off the green so we can tee off. And I'm just sitting there and it, it, yesterday was a better day than today. It wasn't quite as overcast and the sun came out yesterday. As a matter of fact, I got a little sunburn on my forehead from being out there playing golf. And Howard and I are sitting there together and I says, he's 32 years sober. I said, Howard, did you ever imagine 32 years ago that we'd be sitting here? Both of us got over a hundred bucks in our pocket. We got money in the bank. We own our houses. We own our cars. We got nobody hounding us for money. We're getting along with our families. Did you ever imagine 32 years ago that life could be like that? He says, shit, no, I was suicidal 32 years ago. But these are the things that have happened because I haven't taken a drink. And I got on that job and I applied myself. I got hurt while I was working for that company and instead of going on workman's comp, they said, go out and find us some business, you know. And I did. And I wound up as general manager of the company. I had to go back to school to learn how to do some of the things that I did in that business. And I learned how to be a better employee than I ever was. I learned so many things about living that are come second nature to me now. That I automatically would think the wrong thing if somebody asked me or or anything. That I have learned how through you people teaching me and your actions and reactions that I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous has been the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I think of the people that I know in Alcoholics Anonymous that are my dear, dear friends, you know. Naomi and I got I don't know how long it's been. We've been friends for a long time. You know, and Bob White, twenty nine years I've known the man. He's just a real good nineteen years for Dorothy, I've known her. Dawn, my sweetheart there. Uh, Norma. I like the young gals too, see. <laughs> But I see Iden and I see a lot of the young people come in that I admire. You know, and it's Russ sitting over there. You know, these are guys that have gone through Cider House. And since I've been sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, I was sober 10 years, and a probation officer from Huntington Park over at Walnut Park Probation Office, between he and my sponsor, Duke, took it upon themselves to have all my felonies taken back to court, the guilty pleas removed and the not guilty pleas entered and all my citizenship rights have been restored to all intents and purposes. I am not a convicted felon because of this program and because of you people. You know, I didn't know, didn't even know what was happening. They did it because they weren't sure they could get it done and this brownie got it done. This is one of the benefits that, you know, because I would work with his babies. My best friend is a judge or a retired judge, but he's still... Working in the courts. And some of you know him. Some of you have been given the little nudge from the judge, the, the court card, you know. He and I invented that court card. One day he was here in a jury trial, and he, I come into his courtroom, and he gives me the office, come on up there, and we stood there, and he's telling me about how he's having a hell of a time trying to send letters out to AA because he never knows where these people are going to go that he's sending to AA. So he was going wants to give them the card to get it signed and bring it back to him. And we designed the thing and I took it to a friend of mine over in Huntington Park and he printed the first 1,000 of those. And they become county forms and city forms and all the courts all over the country. That court card was right here in the Downey courtroom. It's where it got started. If you ever come to my house in my living room, I've got one of the first 1,000 cards with a note on it from Judge Emerson that he gave me in this frame there, one of the first court cards Now, this is because I stayed sober in alcohol. I was best man at his wedding. And that's pretty weird that a a judge and an ex-convict can be best friends. You know? But these are the good things that have happened. And this is the benefit of staying sober. Keeping my nose clean. Quit screwing with other people. And quit fighting and arguing and, and all this kind of stuff. You know, I found the greatest argument stopper is the word, two words, I'm sorry. You know? I... I shouldn't have said what I did, or whatever it happens to be. Instead, i got to be right. I can be wrong. And I can apologize. And it keeps me out of trouble with you. And when it keeps me out of trouble with you, it keeps me out of trouble with me. And it's all through these 12 steps. The first three steps are the ABCs after the things. You know, that... I think that this is the greatest text of a living program that anybody could ever have. You know, I'm not a religious man. I don't believe in religion. I think that most religions are worse than the mafia. You know, I really do. You know, they threaten you with the loss. The most intangible thing you've got is your immortal soul. If you do not believe as we do, you're going to burn in hellfire. And I don't even know what hellfire is. I think we make our own hell right here on earth. But I do believe that there is something. And for lack of a better name, it could be good, it could be God. It could be Buddhist, Hindu, Allah. You know, hell, man has had a supreme being ever since way back when, and he's also had booze ever since way back when. (laughs) He had booze before he had dope. Dope is just an added kicker, you know. It's a little higher high, maybe, you know. But Zoroastrians had booze way back then Noah when he landed on Ararat the first thing he did was planted a vineyard so he could get some grapes to stomp and make some wine
1: <laughs>
0: you know it's out there and it's available there's liquor stores all over the goddamn place I can drink if I want to it's legal to sell it legal to drink and legal to buy it but I choose not to because I've learned these things in Alcoholics Anonymous that I am a person who cannot control and enjoy my liquor drinking and if you want what I have, the peace of mind, you know, I'm not rich by any stretch of the imagination, but I bet you I don't die of starvation. You know, and I got friends. I got people that I love and they love me. I look at, uh, I look at, around this room and see the people. I see Carl here. I see Michael here. I saw Michael when he came and I used to pick him up over there in Firestone, have him walk across the street and I'll pick you up on the other way because I have to swing around. Out of the way from my house, but we got over to Cider House, right, Mike? See, and I, I see that the, the people here that from way back when, I see Paul, I remember he was about, you know,
1: <laughs>
0: but he's one of the prides, he's one of the prides that this has happened, you know, and it's, uh, it's been a, uh, just a wonderful, wonderful trip for me to be sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and if you want what I have, this enthusiasm, this love for my my fellows, you're welcome to it because it's in this program and it's with you people. And it's here. It's in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Read the book if you have not Reread it if you have. It's in the book. If you'll read page 112 in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, the first three words will tell you what to do. And I ain't going to tell you what it says, but you get the book. (laughs) And read page 112, the first three words. And it'll work. It'll work. You know. There, I can see I got one back here looking now. That's good. But tell them what it says. First three words on page 112. Read this book. (laughs) But that's, Do it right, now. right, that's what, that's what it's all about. And, but if you want what we have, this is what's there for you. You know, I, I, I went to a meeting Friday night and it was a men's stag meeting. And then god damn, the sniveling that I heard that went on there would drive you crazy. You know, this one guy spent 15 minutes talking about his wife getting a goddamn restraining order against him. and... The dirty bitch had no business doing that, you know. (laughs) And I'm thinking, man, you know, in the first place, if you got a sponsor, he's the guy to tell you, don't say that in an open meeting. You know, your personal problems, call your sponsor and talk to them. That's what it's about. You know, these are the things that my sponsor, Duke Carson, died and Eddie O'Connor became my sponsor and he died and Melavila became my sponsor, and he died, and I'm afraid to ask Carl to be my sponsor. (laughs) (laughs) I've outlived all these people, see, but Duke was 92 years old. The other guys were younger than I, but they were wonderful guys, those of you that knew them. Get a sponsor, somebody that you can talk to, somebody that you aren't afraid is going to tell everybody else what you've told them. I... uh, In the first place, when I made my inventory, and I wrote down all the bullshit that I had done, and I started with now and went backwards. Duke told me, he said, don't go back to year one and bring it up to here. You'll never get there. Start with what's bothering you right now. And what is there about yourself right now that you don't want to tell anybody? You don't want anybody to find out. And that's what I started with. I've still got that same nickel notebook pad. I've heard people say, you're supposed to burn it. Bullshit. I look at it and I add to it when I find something in there that that I've done that bothers me I'll write myself a promise I'll never mention that in anger again and I can keep that promise to me I don't have to make the promise to you and I write those things down in that thing and it's, it's a real junky thing you know and after the statute of limitations has run out it's pretty easy to say man I stole a freight train you know that's a pretty goddamn big thing to steal but uh, Cop out that you robbed your kid's piggy bank. Now that's chicken shit. And this was what I did. These kind of things. And these were the things that that bothered me and that I had to put in there and I had to bring them out and get them in the open. And when I looked at them, you know, they're really insignificant in a way. But I had to make them right. And the eighth and ninth steps take care of that. That sixth and seventh step. Duke told me the sixth and seventh step that uh, they would take care of all those things in the fourth and fifth step if I would ask for the power to do the things i needed, ask for the help that i needed because admitting that i had these character defects is fine but i gotta ask for the help to get rid of because i couldn't do it by myself and whatever that god or good or buddha or shindu or Allah or whatever that supreme being is that if i will ask for the help please help me to find out how to do this usually it happens And we are impatient. We can't wait for things to happen. We've got to push, you know. And But if we just sit back and wait, they will happen. The eighth and the ninth steps made me a free man. Made me, I could walk straight down the street and look anybody in the eye. There isn't anybody that I'm ashamed today that I, I can't look at. I'm not afraid to answer the phone. I'm not afraid to answer the doorbell when it rings. Because I have made the amends and I've made things right with people that I have harmed. And I looked at that list when I first made it out, you know, made a list of all persons we had harmed, became willing to make amends to them all. I I thought, shit, most of them had it coming anyway. I didn't want to make
1: amends.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But I found that by making those amends, I could look them in the eye. I had a guy at the corner of Clarence Atlantic, 27 bucks at a service station there, charged gas there and never paid him. And shit, I had that for four or five years. I used to see him in town once in a while, and I'd have to look the other way. I didn't dare look him in the eye. And I got my 27 bucks together and went over and I said, Walt, well, I should have paid you this a long, long time ago, but I, I'm going to pay you now because I've got your name on a list of people I've harmed and I'm trying to straighten all that up. And he said, well, bud, I'm glad to get it. I've heard that you don't drink anymore and I know that that has to be a pretty good deal. And you know, I could go buy gas in his station again. He wouldn't give me credit, but I could go
1: buy <laughs>
0: <laughs> You know, and so that eight and ninth step making amends to such people wherever possible and that tenth step a lot of people say well you know hell it's uh, the fourth step over again no that tenth step we continue to take inventory and we find out things about ourselves we don't like You know, and when we're wrong promptly admit it I don't like to promptly admit I'm wrong about anything at any time because as phony as I am I will figure out where I was right anyway (laughs) you know But I know the sooner I can cop, the easier it is for me to be rid of it. So I know what that tenth step means. The eleventh step scared the hell out of me for a long, long time. Real churchy-sounded step, you know. Last time I went to church, some asshole stole my hat. (laughs) I didn't want to be around those kind of people, you know. But it says we sought through prayer... And meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. It's not true prayer. Well, a prayer is nothing but a good unselfish wish. That's what a prayer, a good wish for the guy next to you is what the uh, prayer is. And meditation is directed thinking, to direct my thinking along a positive line. Don't think the negative, think the positive. We try to carry this message, you know. This is all I can do. God, I didn't know God. I always wanted God to walk up and shake hands and say, ah, bud, I'm God. You know, what can you and I do to straighten this mess out? But he never did. But we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with this God. But ever since I was a kid, there's been a little voice or a hunch or a thought or an idea or a conscience or something that when I'm doing something wrong, have done something wrong, I'm thinking about doing something wrong, it says, Whoops, bud, you better not do it. I say, shut up, I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) God has been talking to me all my life, I just never listened. And so if I will listen to that voice, it keeps me out of trouble with me. And when I keep me out of trouble with me, I can keep me out of trouble with you. And so I know what that 11th step means. And I know how to seek my God. And the 12th step, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of those steps. We tried to carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all our affairs. Having had a spiritual awakening, Bill in the book describes being on a tall mountain with cool breezes blowing through him and flashes of light and all that kind of stuff. I still think he was having DTs, you know.
1: <laughs>
0: but I think better about things and spirituality is a higher plane of thinking, a better way of thinking. And so I've had a spiritual awakening because I think better about things. I try to carry this message where I can. Is how Cider House got started? Is how the council got started? All of these things because I didn't ask for this. I didn't get up one day and say, hey, I'm going to join Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to get involved in all this bullshit, you know. A lot of us been working, a lot of us has been some heartaches. But I try to carry this message where I can. If it's in a school talking to the kids, if it's before a, a Rotary Club or a Kiwanis or something, trying to explain what alcoholism is so people can identify it and identify people with it, I try to carry this message. And when my tail gets in a crack, you can bet your ass I try to practice these principles because that's where it is. And so I try to practice these principles. You know, many of us exclaimed, "What in order? I can't go through with it." Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. But I can't let that, choose that to salve my conscience. I can't say, well, shit, you know, nobody's perfect, you're allowed to do this, that, or the other thing. I have to know my own limitations. And you've taught me what they are. So it's been a real good trip for me. I haven't had a drink since sometime six months before March 10th, 1953. And I'm in pretty good shape for a 78 year old man, I'll tell you. You know, I played golf yesterday and today, and played pretty good. Made a little money. These guys, I, <laughs> these guys I gamble with, we play for quarters. But I got some quarters in my pocket, you know. And so it's it's been a real good deal for me. It's been a real good deal for the people who loved me and, and the wife that I had for 46 years. You know, we were married three years with me drinking and 43 years with me sober. And sometimes that 43 years of me being sober was worse than the three years of drinking. Because I used to could hold that over somebody's head. But God gave me that woman for being the best friend I ever had in my life. You know, and I feel her close to me. And it's because of you people in this program that I'm able to have these things. We had a guy at the hole in the ground for many years named Charlie Faramond. And old Charlie was going blind when he came to Alcoholics Anonymous. He was afraid he wouldn't understand everything it was to know about it. So while he could still see to read, he memorized the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, knew every word in it. If any of you have heard, uh, who's the our black friend from? Oh shit. That's what you knew. But anyway, he knows the book too, but Charlie Faramon did. And you ask Charlie a question about any problem you were having with living, he would always refer you to the book and he'd say on page so and so it says, and he would quote verbatim what it said and then he'd say, and this is what it means to me. And it would be a way that you could find the answer to the dilemma that you had. And when Charlie died, I stole the clothes into his pitch because I think it's good and I think it's important. Charlie closed every pitch he ever gave with this little bit of wisdom. That medical people say that Alcoholics Anonymous is the greatest medicine on the face of the earth. Religious people say that Alcoholics Anonymous is the greatest religion on the face of the earth. I say that Alcoholics Anonymous is the greatest thing on the face of the earth. And no drunk should be without it. Thank you.